The following audio content is a talk given at the Inn, a college ministry of University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theinnseattle.org. We invite you to join us each Tuesday at 9 p.m. on the corner of 16th and 47th in Seattle's U District. Diarrhea hit me like a linebacker, <laughs> roughly 30,000 feet above the Pacific Ocean. And you can imagine, planes typically aren't entirely comfortable, comfortable for me in the first place, but this recent stirring upped the ante in terms of discomfort. So, as you can imagine, the entire flight was spent shifting, getting up and down, and climbing over the sweet old sleeping lady next to me, all the while hoping the bottom didn't fall out of everything. <laughs> so why, why open with this story is the question you may be asking. Two reasons for that. One, I wanted to be the first intern to start a talk with the word diarrhea. <laughs> and, and two... I wanted to set the tone for our brief time together tonight. My hope is, <laughs> work with me, work with, hear me out, hear me out. <laughs> My hope is that the words that I say and the message that God has for you makes you a bit uncomfortable in ways. Just like me on the plane, I hope it makes your mind shift and move, and I hope you are forced to ask yourself some very real and some very hard questions about your own faith. But let's pray. God, I thank you for tonight. Thank you for getting us all here. And I, please just speak to us tonight. Let us hear something from you. Amen. All right, so let's get into it. I'm an education major, history nerd at heart. I loved learning about starting a middle school, Greek and Roman mythology. That was, that was my wheelhouse right there. I loved that. And so tonight I prepared a lesson for you of sorts. Given my educational spirit, we're going to talk about a story in the form of a tragedy. You could call it a lesson in Greek playwriting. So the format of a Greek tragedy is what Aristotle called catharsis or purification. And this surprised me that a tragedy was somehow called purification, but we'll get there. So the protagonist or the tragic hero in tonight's tragedy will be yours truly. How, how incredibly dark. But the format of a Greek tragedy can vary. But generally speaking, they can be broken down into, into three large and connected parts. So we'll go ahead and get right into it first. We have the peripatia, which is Greek for reversal. So what you have in the peripatia is the plot seems to be headed in a, in a general direction, usually seems to be a good thing. Things seem, seem to be going pretty well. But then something happens, and the situation is begun to be turned on its head. So let's begin with my peripatia. All right. It was in the cotton fields of South Carolina that young Grace Seegers was born. Look at that. The interns always have the competition. And I consider this a walk-off home run. That's young Gray. Sun out, gun out. Just flexing some buys at the beach. Sand booger, you know. 
my, my boogie board is actually the lid to a styrofoam cooler. That, that tells you something about my parents. But anyways, so, so I was born the son of Mary and Al and the brother of Mac and Luke. Mac is actually here with us tonight. My family was far more of a blessing than I realized at the time. My mother taught me what it meant to be compassionate and to love selflessly. My dad taught me the meaning of hard work, though at the time I thought he got some twisted pleasure out of watching us push lawnmowers over grass that hadn't grown since last week. And I couldn't have a better friend than my brothers, with whom I share a bond that cannot be matched. But for the interest of time, I'll fast forward a few years in school. I've repressed most of the memories of middle school, so we'll skip those too. <laughs> and so we arrive at high school. High school, was, high school was a good time for Gray. I grew taller and a bit narrower, which was a welcome change from a rather awkward version you would have seen in middle school. That's, that's G on the right there. Wearing a South Park shirt. <laughs> so, we can go ahead and take that one down. <laughs> I played on a couple different sports teams, did pretty well in class, and without tooting my horn, I thought I was generally well-liked. I, some say I peaked in high school. <laughs> I, I became really involved with my church. And for the first time in my life, I, I would say my faith came alive. And we say faith come alive all the time. But what, what it meant specifically is it changed things. It, it changed the way I looked at people. It changed the way I saw life. I loved people more, to put it simply. And at the end of my junior year, I was elected the president of FCA, Fellowship of Christian Athletes. Talked to the pastor at my church about a career in ministry. Ooh. And... <laughs> And that seemed to be the road I was going down. All the accolades one can imagine. But then, remember that twist I told you about? Think on that. <laughs> All right. But then, around the end of my junior year, I began to have some questions, some doubts, if you will. Some of these came from my brothers. Some came from science class. Some came from my own mind. Questions like, Bible's 2,000 years old. How can I be sure that it's accurate? Anybody ever thought that one? Okay, just me. All right. <laughs> if people of other religions hear the voice of God, how do I know I'm not just making up the voice of God in my mind? Good questions. Fair questions. And these were questions that I didn't want to hear. They seem like tiny little cracks in my faith. And you've seen a crack in a windshield. It's slowly just bigger and bigger. And in my mind, more importantly, these weren't the types of questions that, that a Christian should be asking, you know, especially not the president of FCA. <laughs> and they seemed to me to be a slap in the face of God. So I would wrestle with them at a very superficial level with the hopes that they just go away. And if they wouldn't, I'd pretend that they just weren't there. Imaginary friend type stuff. One day... I looked up after putting away all these doubts and all I saw was cracks. My faith felt like a desert, dried up and lifeless. See cracks, desert, lifeless. When this, but this is kind of the image 
that I felt at the time and in hindsight that I associate with how my relationship with God felt. Just nothing there, pretty much. You could plant a seed in that, but try and tell me that that's going to grow. And some of you may be feeling this way tonight. But being the president of FCA and a leader in my church's youth group, I recognize the black eye that would, that would be my public denouncement of faith. I realized how bad it would look if Grace Eagers, the future pastor, had lost his faith. I didn't want people to question their beliefs because I questioned mine. So I decided, bad decision or not, that I would go through the motions and try and just make as few ripples as I could until I graduated. In hindsight, there was no poison so strong to my faith as faking it to the world around me. In my mind, I knew my faith was a bit of a sham. And I began to think of faith in general as a a sham. And so if you're faking it tonight, you don't have to, you don't have to stand up in front of the inn and tell everybody that I'm faking it. But I would encourage you to find a friend that you trust to share that with. Free, free yourself of the pressure of trying to be someone that you're not in regards to your belief. And I urge you to be real, not only with your friends, but with God about that too. Because faking it can do some bad things. But anyways, so now we have some verses from John. Now Thomas... One of the twelve, one of the twelve disciples, called the twin, was not with them, meaning the other disciples, when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, Thomas, we've seen the Lord. But Thomas said to him, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. I cannot believe. It's not that he didn't want to, he couldn't. Eight days later, Jesus' disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came in and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he went to Thomas and said, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. So here we have who the Christian community refers to as Doubting Thomas. Thomas is one of the 12 disciples, and as you just heard, he doubted the story that the disciples were telling about Jesus showing up alive again. Thomas just wasn't sure it went down the way they said. Thomas thinks, hey, it's been a long three days for you guys. I know you haven't slept much. Maybe you hallucinated. Maybe, maybe it was a dream. Thomas said, I, I can't take a risk on that. Thomas had to be sure that it was Jesus that showed himself to the disciples. Thomas absolutely refused to claim that he believed something that he didn't sincerely believe. And I admire that in him. Because in a lot of ways, I felt like Thomas. On one hand, I, de- I desperately wanted to believe in Jesus. And on the other hand, I was riddled by doubts that I knew I knew I could not ignore. I couldn't pretend they weren't there. 
It didn't work. And I didn't realize at the time the depth and the magnitude of the challenges that were just around the corner. And so ends our peripatia. Commercial break would be now. All right. So our second part, anagnorisis. It's a Greek word for recognition or knowing again. So what we have here, trouble is in the distance for our tragic hero. We in the audience have have kind of picked up on this, have we not? Trouble is in the distance for Gray here. But he didn't know it. He didn't fully understand it until this act. This is when he realizes the, the danger that he's in. He understands the magnitude of the problem. My anagnorisis coincided with the new setting, college. I know you can relate to that. But I entered college, like some of you, doing it as a blank slate in regards to my faith. High school gray was in the rearview mirror, and quite frankly, I was hoping that the doubts would stay there with him. I remember praying to God and asking him to help me move past these doubts. I prayed and begged God to respond, yet all I heard was the ticking of a clock in an empty bedroom. Job sums it up. I cry out to you, God, but you do not answer. I stand up, but you merely look at me. That's how I felt. And I had a bunch of Christian friends, as some of you might, tell me, Gray, you just need to get plugged in. Don't you love that phrase? So I attended about half a dozen different churches, a few different college ministries, and I found I'd always leave them one of two types of off. Turned off or pissed off. One of the two types of off. The guys I met there didn't drink, and they sure as hell didn't cuss. But in in matters of what I considered the most practical morality, they were some of the most out-of-touch and selfish people I encountered during college. Who wants an example? Yeah. All right. I'll give you an example. Not long after, a, the girlfriend of mine at the time and I broke up. One of these guys who was trying to Christian me up asked my recently ex-girlfriend out on a date, on which he told her, and I quote, God has told me to marry you. <laughs> so cheers to you tonight, good friend. He did get engaged this year, not to her, but anyways, but in all seriousness, I don't hold any resentment for any of that or any of the people involved, but the reason I I tell you this is because I began to not only ask myself if Christianity was true, but did I even want to be associated with this group who call themselves Christians? Maybe this has happened to you. And one day during my junior year, playing a game of ping pong with my roommate, Shane, I decided I, I frankly was tired of trying. And on that day, I waved the white flag to my doubts, and I gave up. And at that point, the page turned, and I entered one of the darkest chapters of my life. So ends our anagnorisis. Commercial break. All right, so third... Pathos, 
which in Greek means to evoke sadness or suffering. You've probably heard this in your public speaking communication class. It's rarely used in this sense anymore. Pathos in your public speaking class is typically the only place you hear this word. But, and I quote, it describes the third and final element of plot, and it is a destructive or painful act. Spoiler alert. So, this next part is is the hardest for me to explain in words. So I'll go with a quote. I do love quotes. In Aeneid, the poet Virgil writes, All at once the warmth fell away, and the life passed into the moving air. A breeze came in and swept the life out of my living body. I was a ship lost in the fog. This was life. My mind went to a place where I thought all of life was a charade. We participate in religion and start nonprofits and help the poor people to make ourselves feel like we're doing something worthwhile, something meaningful, something that will last. We, we spend our whole lives trying to convince ourselves that we matter, but we don't. I could die tomorrow and no one would really care. Yes, there would be a memorial, people would cry, but one month later, with the exception of my immediate family, everyone's life would essentially return to normal. My soul descended into a place where I no longer saw the good in people. I no longer saw good in my friends. I didn't see the good in people at all. I hated happy people and looked down on them for being so naive and happy. I was disgusted with the world, and I was disgusted with myself. And when you're, when you're depressed, you think thoughts like this. But the worst part about them all is that you think that they cannot and they will not ever change. There's, there is no light at the end of the tunnel. They won't get better. That this is the way life is going to be from here all the way on out. I remember being on a, on a boat fishing with my friend Shane, same guy, on a beautiful but particularly depressing Saturday and thinking that I would like to roll out of the boat and swim to the bottom of the lake. I saw myself swimming to the bottom, wrapping myself up in some seaweeds, until I didn't have to think anymore. I want to take a minute to say that if you're feeling hopeless about life tonight, I beg you to believe me that things can and they will change. But you know what? If you're at a place like I was, I doubt you would believe me. I know I wouldn't have. The thing I think you actually need to hear, if that's where you are, is that your mind, your own mind, is not as trustworthy as you think it is. At some some point in our lives, and I don't know when, I don't know why, we take hold of this assumption that our emotions are governed by reason, that our emotions make sense. This is simply not true. Question those emotions. Don't blindly subscribe to what they're telling you just because their origin is your head. Doubt what they say about you and doubt what they say about your situation. For those three years, I felt like my life was a Greek tragedy. I thank God for how those doubts did not have the final word 
in my life. And then somehow between then and now, I became your intern. There wasn't, there wasn't a magical conversation I had or some vision on top of a hill that God showed me. It was a very long and honestly a very frustrating process. But I slowly began to accept my doubts and the concept of their coexistence within my faith. The idea that my doubts could somehow share a room with my faith. I'd tell you all the details, but it's nothing that would be in a movie. I would say most of the stories that matter aren't. But you come out of the other side of something like this, a dark spot in your life, still wondering why it all had to happen. Yeah, you made it out, but why? God, God, why would you... I wanted... See, it's not like I was walking away from God. I wanted to believe. And why would that be denied? Why do we have to go through these periods of desperate hopelessness? And I think we can start to find an answer in the first chapter of James, which says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And let perseverance have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Quick disclaimer. If in the midst of my darkness, my turmoil, someone had had come to me and said, Gray, that way you're feeling right now, consider that pure joy. It It would have done little more than piss me off. But like most things in life, it makes more sense looking back. Because as as close as I felt to God in high school, in hindsight, I feel like my faith as it stands today is more genuine, more pure. But let's go back to the verse real quick. Let's take a, a closer look at the phrase, testing of your faith. What does that even mean, testing of your faith? Well, the Greek word for testing here is dakimion. Dakimion, which is the word for sterling coinage or money that is pure, that is genuine, not alloyed or combined with other metals. So like pure metal, pure silver, if you will. I'm not sure how familiar, familiar you are with the process of forging steel. I know I was not. But what you do, I watched a How It's Made video on this, so I know. <laughs> You take a bunch of broken, damaged scrap iron, and you heat it to a really hot temperature. Like, I think 1,600 degrees was was the measure there. And this puts a whole lot of tension on that metal. It puts a whole lot of heat on the materials involved. And some of them, some parts don't make it. These conditions, however, are the only way to purge, those, to purge those impurities and to burn out the dredges and the weaknesses of the material. Look at it. It gets hot. And some aspects, as I said, of that old metal don't survive, but the composition of the metal changes. It becomes steel. It becomes stronger. And this is what I think testing does for us. 
the same thing that forging does for steel. It takes our souls to a place where we can not only suffer through and survive the storms that come in life, but we can vanquish them. We can find a way to somehow bring good from what at the time could only seem to be evil. But when I look back, when I look back at my my downfall, if you will, and try and figure out what what went wrong, what, what would I have done differently if I could go back? If I could advise Gray three, four years ago, what would I tell him? A lot of things, but one, one in particular that comes to mind is, Gray, you were paralyzed by the idea of uncertainty. Paralyzed, frozen up by the idea of uncertainty. And I would go so far as to say that you're in my generation in general is paralyzed by the idea of uncertainty. Uncertainty with our lives, with our future, with our job, with our spouse, with our beliefs. But the thing is, uncertainty is nothing new. If anything, our lives nowadays are more certain than any time in history. How we handle it today is what's different. We tend to deem ourselves unable to move on until we're absolutely positive about the next step. We'd rather sit there and look than take a chance on something. James 1 has a little more for us. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Feel like that? Feel like that's me, back three years ago. Pretty harsh. It kind of sounds. The word double-minded here. One last word study. Diakrino. That's a Greek word there. Diakrino, which in Greek means to endlessly weigh or endlessly divide. Endlessly weighing options. Endlessly divide. Some people can't decide about their faith. They have lived a life that Earl Palmer would call a life of due diligence. Earl uses the analogy of of buying a house. Put yourself maybe 10 years in the future. The hesitations involved with purchasing that house. It's a big investment, no doubt. But you can find yourself asking, well, it's termite-free, but what about earthquakes? Does that pond down the road ever flood with rain? What if the, the school zoning changes, and our kids we might have one day have to end up going to a different school? There are always more questions that could be asked. Always more doubts to have answered. And I think it's easy to take this this approach with our faith. And I will stand up here and tell you that if you're going to spend your whole life waiting for absolute and unquestionable proof that God exists, I'm not sure you're going to find it. I'd go so far as to say, I don't think you're going to find it. Just like a marriage... Sometimes we have to make a commitment to something even though we're not 100% certain. Let's say you're 95% sure you married the right girl. Can you give her a 95% commitment? At some point, 
after a diligent and honest search, key there, diligent and honest, not just because it's what's in front of you, we must commit. And with time, this commitment will not always become more certain, but it will become more faithful. And being faithful is more important than being certain. It just doesn't feel as good. Certainty feels good. And I will, I will say, from my experience, lasting faith cannot have its foundation on feeling. If your faith is based on a, a warm feeling that you have, the, a day will come with, where that warmth will go away. It will. If it hasn't yet, it will. And what happens then defines your faith. That is, that is a test that I failed in high school. I don't stand here talking down to you. I, I failed that test. But lastly, consider this one in your own mind. Little side thought. Sometimes we might go so far as to believe that the gospel message, Jesus dying for us to save us, is, a, is too good to be true. This earth we live in doesn't deserve something like that. These thoughts cause doubts. We think fairy tales and happy endings are for Disney movies. In this world, you don't hit the game-winning shot. The girl stays with the jerk, and the cancer comes back. The idea of a God dying for me seems a bit too good to be true. It doesn't seem to match everything else I'm seeing. If this is you tonight, engage that. That's, that's, I can't tell you anything about that. That's, some, that's a question for you and for God. So we're left with this question. What is faith? What is faith? Is faith the absence, absence, uh, absence of doubt? Allow me to illustrate I've had a $10 bill in my hand this entire talk. Can I get anyone to believe me? Anyone believe me on that? Can I get... Shane Jansen believes me. All right. Shane, here in front of all of your friends and peers, I'm going to destroy your faith in me. Here in front of everyone. $10 bill. And man, is it sweaty. (laughs) All right. So what you have now is not faith. You had faith in my statement. What you have now is not faith. Your faith has become knowledge. There's no question involved anymore. The very concept of faith requires that unknown, an unproven commodity, an intellectual risk. The phrase leap of faith, it's, there's the chance you might fall down in the crack, you know. The leap of faith. Because faith without doubts is not faith at all. That's knowledge. Shane? There we go. That's three weeks' pay for an intern. (laughs) So from that, I would say, I feel like we are raised with this idea that doubts are terrible things. Doubts are like a a rotting subfloor in a house. 
And I'm try- I want you to shake that away. Don't fear those doubts. Seek to find the truth in them. As, as hunger prompts our, our stomach, ourselves, to find food, I believe doubts prompt our minds to find reality. The, the uneasiness there, the, the squirming, the moving, the climbing over the sleeping lady sometimes, it prompts you to, to find some answers. The disciples had doubts. Heck, one of them is named Doubting Thomas. I have doubts. Despite it all, I still have doubts. On the other hand, religious extremists seem to have no doubts. It's not hard to come up with a a list of religious fanatics who out of certainty for their cause have done great harm. And these aren't only terrorists, but people in my own religious tradition, which is almost harder to admit. It's not always bombs, sometimes it's judgment. We must rid ourselves of the assertion that there's some kind of linear relationship between being more faithful and having fewer doubts. Having fewer doubts does not make you more faithful by default. It's not that simple. So I'll close with this one final point. One last question. We've been through a lot tonight, but what is it that we actually believe? What do we believe, and why is knowing that important? The word belief is thrown around a lot. How do we know? Author Michael Novak draws a line between three types of convictions. We're only going to do two. Only got time. But the two important ones in my eyes, convictions or beliefs. The two kinds, private convictions and core convictions. And again, when I say convictions, quite simply, I mean your beliefs. So, first of all, first off, private convictions. These are beliefs that we sincerely think we believe. But when push comes to shove, or things heat up a bit, there starts to be a cost, these convictions tend to fall off by the wayside. Let me give you an example. Went to a summer camp last summer, ropes course. On the ground, they give you the whole briefing. They fit your harness on you, and they show you the ropes, and <laughs> pun intended. They show you, <laughs> they show you how everything works, and uh, and then you're like, okay, yeah, that's good. If, if they'd have come up and asked me, Gray, do you do you believe this ropes course is safe? I would have genuinely believed. Yeah, I would have said, yeah, I think so, and that would be genuine. That wouldn't be me trying to impress. I would have said I believed that that rope, ropes course is safe. But then you climb that tree, and you go up there. And you're on top of that platform looking down, and you start sweating from every gland in your body. And it becomes clear that in reality, I didn't believe that ropes course was safe. I thought I did. Let's get biblical real quick. Mark 14. <laughs> Peter, or Jesus comes up to Peter and says, Peter, man, you're about to, you're about to deny me three times. And Peter says, no way will I deny you. Not long after, this big angry mob arrests Jesus and then comes looking for people who knew Jesus. And Peter's like, nah, nah, never heard of him. Not once, not twice, but thrice. And if you would ask Peter, it's not like he was lying. Peter genuinely thought that he wouldn't, wouldn't deny Jesus. He thought he believed that. So to summarize, these private convictions are things that we think we believe. But when it starts to cost us, a little unpleasant, a little inconvenient, 
we often back off of these. To contrast, core convictions. These are our beliefs that you don't even have to say aloud. They're revealed by our daily actions. They're revealed by what we actually do. Think simply. If you touch fire, you're going to get burned. You don't have to consciously think not to touch the hot stove. You don't have to go around telling others how you avoid walking into fires. You just believe it. And you don't, you don't try and prove that to anyone. And returning to the ropes course example, compare me, sweating, to the staff at the camp who had been on the course all summer and they were prancing from platform to platform, walking on the ropes backwards and stuff like that. Their comfort and trust bold, 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 demonstrated by their actions showed that they believed these ropes were safe. No words necessary there. Their actions showed. My words did not. You have to be a student of your own behavior to figure out what it is that you believe. So now is when I might get a little uncomfortable. For me, at least. Let's say an alien comes down from outer space. That's the sound aliens make. And spent two months studying me, studying my actions. To draw nothing that I said, just what I did. To draw up a report on what it is that Gray Seegers actually believes. This is what he might come up with. Verse one, I believe a lie is a bad thing. But it might be necessary to avoid pain or inconvenience. Again, just looking at what I do. Second one, I believe in being kind to people as long as it's convenient to my mood at the time. As long as I'm in a good mood, I'll be, you know, jolly Jerry. But if I'm, if I'm in a bad mood, I can't guarantee that. Third, I believe I have the right to pass judgment on or talk about other people if I know there's no way they'll find out. Ooh, collective gasp. All right, fourth. I believe that thousands of people dying of preventable diseases every day around the world is not worth risking my privilege for. I would rather buy an iPhone case or something like that. Again, if you, it sounds bad. I would tell you that I, I believed hungry kids need to eat. But what am, I, what am I doing? Nothing. But let's think in terms of faith. What do our actions say about what we really believe about God? Do our private lives, what we do when no one's looking, reflect a God who is always present, who knows all? Do we treat each other in a way that we would treat Jesus? But don't get me wrong. I'm not up here trying to tell you to behave better and like convince people that you're good and stuff. This is why it's important. This is how it, how it ties to doubt. You can't, hear me out on this, you cannot have a core belief that there is a God and live as though there isn't. I'll say it again. You can't have a core belief that there's a God and live as though there isn't. You can probably do it for a while, but they can't coexist. It'd be, I'll draw you an example right here. Let's say, let's say you're married and 
you keep cheating on your spouse the whole time trying, trying to believe that you love her, trying to, like really trying to convince yourself despite what you keep doing that you love her, you can't keep that up. I think you can all see how that belief in your mind will become a joke. When we live our lives in a way that contradicts what we say we believe about God, what we create is living, walking evidence for how invalid his claims are in our life. And then we treat that doubt that I feel we created in a way as some cloud that arbitrarily sets in. But I believe, as I said, that we, we create some of it in how we live. And Jesus is the only one who said, thought, and did congruently. He didn't say, believe my arguments, believe everything I said. He said, follow me. And at its core, faith is not simply belief in a statement, but is trusting in a person. To conclude, I know I'm probably, probably over time. Throughout this series, we've been talking to you about what it means to have childlike faith without being childish. And as I exit tonight, I challenge you. When my faith returned, it's not because I had all my questions answered or my doubts answered. I got it all figured out. I still wonder about some of them to this day. Those ones I asked you, I could try, but probably nothing that would satisfy even myself. But what I've done is I've owned that doubt. And through that, I have owned my faith. The questions don't haunt me like they used to. I am at peace with their existence within my faith. And even in times where we as Christians are not certain, we still can live our lives in a way that will bear witness to a God who can handle uncertainty. C.S. Lewis writes, this is one of my favorite quotes. He writes in the Screwtape Letters about the power of a human who no longer desiring, but still intending to do God's will, looks round upon him a universe on which every trace of God seems to have vanished. And he asks God why he has been forsaken and still obeys. If this was me during my hard times, it would have been, has been forsaken and walks away. That was me. So challenge your doubts. I challenge you to make, a, make your life a living testament to what it is you proclaim, not a walking con- contradiction. So maybe Aristotle was right about tragedy, about catharsis. Maybe tragedy really is a purification. Amen.